feel like that? <laughs> yeah, one of, the, one of the most vivid, haunting scenes in the past 15 or 20 years in, in movies, I think. And I'm particularly fond of it because my last name is Wilson, right? <laughs> and so what you just saw is a clip from the movie Castaway where Tom Hanks plays Chuck Nolan. And you guys remember the movie? He's this alcoholic executive for FedEx who survives this plane crash and then he's stranded on this deserted island, all by himself. He's isolated, he's alone, he's vulnerable. And and you remember the plot of this movie, right? The whole plot is, will he survive? Can he survive? Can he survive this terrible adventure that he's on and finally get back home? And we all know this, survival is more than just physical, right? Because, Because at some point, Chuck Nolan, he built some shelter and he teaches himself how to spearfish, And he's relatively safe and secure while he's on this island, but he's still missing something fundamental to the human experience. He's still missing something that we really need, something that's very important for our survival. What is he missing? He's missing relationship and connection and community. He was all alone. And so what does he do? What's he do? Well, he opens this FedEx box that was on the plane with him, and there's a volleyball on the inside, and so he creates Wilson. Wilson is this volleyball he makes out of his handprint, made of kind of this dried blood from a time he cut his hand, and he starts talking to a volleyball, and he starts interacting with the volleyball, and he starts planning and processing and confessing even to this 
volleyball. And by the end of the movie, by, by the time this, this inanimate object is floating away, we, we see the spirit of this guy crushed. And I used to think it was because Tom Hanks was such a great actor. Man, how great of an actor do you have to be to make me cry when a volleyball floats away, right? <laughs> but I don't think that's it. I think that they're unpacking something that's fundamental to human experience here. It's that we need relationship. We were created for community. And so it's not outside of the realm of plausibility that someone, if they were stranded on a deserted island, would create a volleyball as their friend, as their community. Every single one of us knows deep down that you cannot survive or thrive or function in any meaningful way on this earth without community, without relationships. This is why in almost every major story or plot in any book or anything that you've seen, the plot really doesn't take off. The, the, the plot really doesn't get going until the main character finds his community, right? We see this all the time. And so Star Wars, right? Luke Skywalker finds Obi-Wan Kenobi, Han Solo, Chewbacca, Leia, and it's then that the plot takes off in the movie, when he finds his community. Bilbo Baggins, 13 dwarves. It's when they show up in his experience that the plot really starts taking off. The plot in our lives cannot and does not and will not take off until we find our people, the people to support us and care for us in the middle of this great story called life that we're in. And we have this problem that that exists in our culture today that we have to acknowledge in the middle of this reality. And the problem is this. We tend to drift toward isolation. We tend to drift toward isolation. Just like when you're driving down the road and you're in a car and you have the steering wheel, if you are not constantly making those small incremental adjustments to your steering wheel, you will drift out of your lane into those, barrier, those annoying barrier walls on 49 that I'm ready for them to be done with, right? If you, don't, if you don't constantly make those small incremental adjustments in your life, you will drift. And, and community is the same way. If we are not constantly adjusting our lives to make room for community and connection and relationships, we will drift away from it. There's just too much friction in our lives, right? I mean, get, get this. We live in a world where you can get up and get dressed, and you go to your garage, and you get into your car, and you drive to work by yourself. Maybe you listen to a podcast, and you work all day long staring at a computer screen. And then you drive home, and you pull into your garage, and you shut the door, and you can live your entire day without interacting in a meaningful way with another human being. Isn't this true? Isn't this true? It's terrifying, isn't it? You can live in a world where there are more people on the earth than at any point in history, yet be more isolated than any people in, in the history of the world before us. And, and how about social media? Let's talk about social media for just a sec, because I think this is part of the problem. We have all these platforms and technologies that are promising deeper levels of connection, deeper levels of community. Do you want a friend? Swipe right, right? And so... We have all these things promising community and connection, yet why do we feel more isolated and alone than ever before? Why is it? I think it's because social media is kind of like the Doritos of, of community. 
And, and, and you know Doritos, right? You could eat an entire bag of Doritos all day long, and, and maybe you feel somewhat satisfied, but your body doesn't get what it needs. It's empty calories, and you kind of feel gross by the end of the day, and you're like, I feel like everyone's judging me. And they are. <laughs> they are. Social media is just like that, because what we do is we, we, we look at other people's lives, and we start comparing ourselves to the highlight reel for, for everybody else. And, and so this narrative starts to form in our head, and we're like, oh, what? well, their life looks pretty good. And, boy, they have a lot of friends, and they're very connected, and they have a lot of relationships. And my life's kind of lousy, and I'm not sure what's going on. And wait a second, those people hung out this weekend? Why didn't I get invited? Do those people hate me? And we start developing this narrative in our head where we're comparing our existence to the highlight reels of other people's lives, and it puts us into this comparison game, and you end up more isolated from community. You you end up in this place where you're like, I don't even know if I want to initiate because it seems like everybody else already has it, but I don't. And so we have this problem where we drift toward isolation. If you haven't figured it out yet, we're talking this morning about community, community, the importance of connection and relationship. This is one of the sermons I will preach every day the rest of my life. This is one of those things that I think is so fundamental to our faith and to our experience as human beings that we have to talk about this all the time. And let me just say this as we frame this at the very beginning. It's at New Heights, we want to be a church that lives in authentic, transparent, vulnerable, Christ-centered community. We need that. We have to have that. We can't survive without it. And so let me just say this. I'm not going to tell most of you anything new this morning. This is not new stuff. This is not going to be one of those, my mind is completely blown by this new insight you've given me from the scriptures. But I love what that old quote says. We more often need to be reminded than we need to be taught. We don't need lots of new teaching regularly. What we tend to need is reminding of what is important. And this is one of those things that we need to meditate on and chew on and digest and murmur to ourselves that we were created for community, created for relationships. This is big deal stuff. And so that's the talk. I want to pray, and then we're going to get going, okay? Lord, thank you for the opportunity to gather together here in your name as the community of faith. And Jesus, we are desperate for your presence in our experience here this morning. Uh, God, if you don't show up, then, then, then this is not worth it. Uh, we're like Moses who said, Lord, if you don't go with us, if you don't go before us, I don't want to go. And so, Lord, would you swim around in your word? Would you swim around in this idea, in this topic? And by the end of this thing, Lord, would you convict us? If we're disconnecting ourselves, would you inspire us to help create community? And Lord, would we be people who make this happen in our midst? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, if you have your Bibles, open them up to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to start at the very beginning looking at community. And while you're turning there, I want to frame this whole series. We're starting a new series today, and we're calling this series Family and family and. And over the next several weeks, what we're going to be doing is talking about family and community, family and discipleship, family and fatherhood and motherhood, family and sexuality, family and rest. Oh, we need to talk about that, don't we? And Sabbath, 
family and parenting, family and technology. And, and, and right at the very beginning here, what, what I want to do is I want to back up a little bit because when I say family, every single one of us, we think a certain thing, and we need to broaden our definition of family. Family is something way bigger than you're thinking right now. Back in the spring, I started thinking about the local church and what this whole thing is and contemplating. And one of the things that, that, that I remembered from a seminary class I took, they, they talked about how the local church is this organized organism. It's this, this organic growing thing, but it's also this thing that's organized and structured. And so I started thinking back to middle school science. You guys remember middle school science? How do you organize organisms? You do it in families and genus and species, but, but there's this familial element to organizing this organic thing called life. And I think that's what the local church is. I feel like the Holy Spirit was like, that's the church. We are this organized organism that is connected as family. And so over the next several weeks, we're going to talk about things that pertain to families and husbands and wives and children and all those things. But we ultimately want to speak to the broader family of God. So if you're here this morning and you're married, we're going to talk to you. If you're here over the next several weeks and you're single, this is about you. We need you. If you're here this morning and you are retired, oh, Lord, we need you. <laughs> we do. We're in this serious deficit of older, older mentor-type figures in our society. I read a quote several years ago that great is a society whose old men plant trees and whom they will never sit in the shade. We are in a great deficit for those people. So we need you. If you're here and you're a young professional, we need you. And so we're talking to the broader family of God. That's what this series is about. We are all in this together. That's what it means to be a body. That's what it means to be a church. That's what this series is about. Okay, look with me at Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. We've got to go all the way back to the very beginning to frame our understanding of, the, of community. And the first question I want to ask is this, why? Why community? Why do we do this? What, what, what is this thing that we do in our lives? And so let's look at Genesis 1. Here's what it says. Genesis 1, 26, 27. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. So God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God. He created them, male and female. He created them. And so why community? Why do we do this? First and foremost, one of the primary reasons why we live in community, why are we created with this fundamental need and desire for connection? It's because we are made in the image of God. We are made in the image of God. We may not look like him physically, but there's something intrinsic about the nature of humanity that we need community, just like God was created in community. Parents, have you ever caught your kids looking like you. It is terrifying. Katie and I will play this game every now and again where we try to catch little quirks and nuances in our kids when we see each other, right? And so, so there was a time about a year ago, our youngest son, Ezra, was one year, one year old. And occasionally, maybe some of you have been in meetings with me, I will prop my hands behind my head and kind of lean back in this relaxed posture. And it's just something I do all the time. And we caught Ezra starting to do this. And so he would put his hands behind. By the way, this picture is totally staged. I had to bribe him. Like, Ezra, do it for me here so I can get a picture. But, but, this, but this is one of those things. Our kids look like us. They, they, they pick up our nuances. They pick up who we are. And it's the same for us and God. We look like our 
Father. We're created in his image. And so what is God? What is God? Well, the scriptures tell us that he is triune. God is trinity, which means that the one God, the God of the Bible, has existed from eternity past. This is creedal Christianity. Some of the first councils in the church, this was the, this was the debate. This was the topic. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Three distinct persons, but one God. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. But the Trinity is God. And what this means for us is that God in his very essence is relational. God is a relational being. From, from eternity past, he has existed in perfect relationship. And we, sometimes we think God created human beings because he was lonely or scared or afraid or he just needed people. He needed to create some Wilsons in the world. But God had perfect relationship in and of himself. And so what did God do? He created humanity so that we could enjoy and participate in his relationship. God is relational, and so we're relational. God doesn't need people, but we need people because we're created in the image of God. We live in community because God is a communal God. That is fundamental to this discussion. We have to remember that because you will always need that. I don't care what kind of vert you are. If you're an introvert or you're an extrovert or you're a convert, I don't, I don't care what kind of vert you are in your life. We need people. Okay, let's look at another scripture. Flip over to Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Here's what it says. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden of the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? And, and the scene here is that Adam and Eve have just sinned. Sin has just entered the picture. They just took the fruit from the serpent, and now they realize that they're naked, and they feel shame, and so they go, and they hide in the bushes, right? They make some clothes for themselves. They're feeling, feeling pretty bad about themselves. And then God starts walking around in the garden, and he asks a question, where are you? And, and, and here's my question about this whole scene. Does God know where Adam and Eve are? Yes. Okay. Does God know what has just transpired with the, the introduction of sin into the human race? Yes, because God is omniscient and omnipresent and all the omnis you can think of, right? And so what is happening here? What's going on? Why would God ask a question that he already knows the answer to? Why would he do this? Here's what I think is happening here. God is showing us how relational he is. Because the question, where are you, is a relational question. You ever have someone you love ask you this question? Hey, sometimes when Katie's out with friends at night and I get worried about her, I'll text her and say, hey, where are you? I'm not paranoid, but, right? Or, or sometimes when I'm with her and I'm on my phone and I'm, I'm somewhere else mentally or emotionally, she'll say, Josh, where are you? Where are you? Because where are you is a relationship question. It's this question that, that says, I, I, I'm pursuing you in relationship. God already knows where they are. God already knows what has happened. But because God in his very essence is relational, his first act, the first thing he does after sin enters the picture is pursue relationally. Don't miss that. That is, this is something that is so intrinsic to the story of Christianity that God pursues us 
relationally. God steps into our pain and our experience and our loneliness, and he's wanting to restore relationship. We were created for community because God is a relational God. In some sense, the the entire experience of the cross is just an act of restoration of relationship. It's all about restoring relationship. God is relational. And so why community? Why community? Because we are made in that God's image. We look like him. He is our father. Every human being on this planet has the same need, the same desire, the same longing for genuine, authentic community. Okay, next reason why we live in community. Ecclesiastes 4, let's look there. Let's let's go to this wisdom book written by Solomon. And here's what he says. Ecclesiastes 4 verse 9, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls down with no one to help them up. If two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Why community? Because I don't know if you've noticed, guys, life is kind of hard. Life is hard. Life is this thing where there are, there, there's that friction and there are those enemies and there are all these forces that are pushing back up against us. And if we don't have people, it is so much more difficult. It's so much more challenging. We can do more and accomplish more when we're living and working and serving in community. Have you guys ever had one of those weeks where you're just like, I, I am, this whole week feels like a Monday. Two weeks ago, Katie and I, we had one of those weeks. It, it was crazy. I shared about it a couple of weeks ago, but Katie had eye surgery, so she had a laser beam point at her eyes to try to fix them, so she was functionally blind for a week. Uh, during that time, our daughter Emma uh, got a pair of scissors, trying to open some bananas, cut her upper lip with a pair of scissors, and so mom's blind. Uh, Emma comes in, face bleeding. That was fun. Still not sure how that happened, by the way. Don't report us or anything. And so, and, uh, and then on top of that, I wake up the next day and I have this terrible sinus allergy infection. I have to go get a steroid shot and get on antibiotics. And it was just one of those weeks. You ever have one of those weeks, wave after wave crashing over you and you just can't hardly keep your head above water. In the middle of all of that mess, we just had people. We had people who just showed up, people who, who, who came over and they, they made food for us. They brought us meals. Has anyone ever had someone bring a meal to you during a hard season of life? That is such a big deal, isn't it? It's a huge deal. People brought us food. We had people step in when we had to leave really quickly and take Emma to the emergency room. We had people drop what they were doing and come to our house to watch our other kids because that's what people do when you live life around people. That's what this kind of support looks like. Do you have those people in your life? Do you? Because life is hard. Life is hard. You've heard this before, but you're either coming out of some crisis, you're in the middle of some crisis, or you're headed into one at some point in your life. That is what life is. We're we're living in between these moments that challenge us and God's with us during all of that and he uses those seasons to grow us but if you don't have people in the middle of the hard stuff boy life can be really challenging and I would say this is especially true if you are one of those godly people who has 
chosen to step into something hard. We have a, a significant population of our church of people who have chosen to foster children, and that is hard. That's really hard. Or people who have chosen to adopt children who are in need in other countries or even in our own country, that is really hard. Or people who have chosen to step in and live life around families who have children with special needs, those things are hard things. And what tends to happen when we step into hard stuff is we think, I've got to circle the wagons around myself. I've got to get my life together. I've got to get my act together. And what you end up doing is stepping back from the very people who can be there to support you and love you and encourage you in the middle of all this hard stuff. And so we need people because we need support. That's why we do community. Why? That's the why. We're created in the image of God, and we need support to get through this life. Okay, moving on. Let's ask the next question. What should community look like? And and, and I love this because we can just look at the Bible and see what a community of the Spirit should look like. What does the Spirit-empowered community of believers look like as we read the New Testament together? Let's turn to Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. This is the, the picture, the example of the early church. And you'll remember the context here. That they're pray, there's 120 people. They're praying in an upper room at Pentecost about 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus, and they're waiting and tarrying, and they pray, and the Holy Spirit falls on this community. Peter stands up to preach. He preaches to 3,000 people, and it says they're cut to heart, and they repent, and they confess, and they're baptized, and the church grows from 120 to 3,000 on day one in Jerusalem. Uh, We bash on megachurch a lot. The first day of Christianity was a megachurch, right? Right? I'm like, what do you do with all those people? What happened? Here's what happened. Here's what the community empowered by the Holy Spirit looks like. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many signs and wonders were performed by the apostles. All believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people and the Lord added to their numbers daily those who were being saved. This is the picture of the early church. This is a picture of the spirit-empowered community. Let's break this down really quickly. What are some things that are happening? What should the community of the spirit look like? Number one, they were devoted. I think this is a huge word in our culture because we are so terrified to commit to anything outside of ourselves. We're so terrified to commit to anything outside of our own experience because we don't want to be subdued by anything. But this was a community that was devoted. And that word in the Greek means to persist obstinately in. They were obstinate in their commitment to this God and to this community. This word is actually used twice in these five verses right here in verse 42. And again in verse 46 when it says, they continued to meet together. This is, this is Hebrews 10. Spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Do not give up meeting together. Continue. Persist obstinately in this. One commentary I read said, Being devoted meant that these Christians did not add Christianity to their already busy lives, but they fully committed themselves to their new identity, to their new experience in Christ. Jesus was the most important thing about them. Is that true for you? What are you devoted to? 
I'll just confess, <laughs> there are things that we can, we can, there are different measuring sticks we can look at in our lives to determine, hey, what am I really devoted to? What, what do you spend your money on? What do you spend your time on? What do you do? What do you think about? What do you talk about all the time? And there are times when, when we feel tired and, and, and worn out relationally that we will, we will just turn on Netflix and and you can sit there and you can just binge watch a, a, a show for, like, a show will end, and then Netflix gives you 15 seconds to figure out, should you keep, okay, yeah. And then, but before you know it, your eyes are bloodshot, you're like totally, you, you don't even know where you are or who you are anymore. It's three in the morning, you have five more kids. What's happened in the span of time? And so, what happens is... We get sucked into these things. We devote ourselves to all kinds of things in our lives. What are you devoted to? What am I devoted to? This is a question we have to wrestle with and we have to ask ourselves. This community in Acts, they were devoted to Jesus in a real way. It changed everything about them. Number two, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. This is the word of God. They did not have a canonized New Testament at this point, but they did have the teachings of Jesus Christ. The 12 men who were discipled by Jesus they, they, they spent time with him. They learned from him. Their words were Christ's words. So they were devoted to the word of God. Still to this day, there's research out on this right now. The churches that are growing and thriving in the West and in the majority world are the churches that are devoted to the authority of the word of God. It's still true today because God is faithful to his word. Number three, they were devoted to fellowship. The Greek word here is koinonia, deliberate life-sharing with fellow believers for the cause of Christ. This is surrounding yourself with people who talk about Jesus, who, who, who challenge you in your faith, who push you on this mission. It's that spur word in Hebrews 10, literally to provoke each other, to prod each other on towards love and good deeds. And this fellowship is always a direct outflow of our relationship with God. They were devoted to the breaking of bread. These are guys who broke bread together. And this was dual purpose. They shared meals together. When was the last time you had someone in your home and fed them food? Because in the Roman and Jewish culture, that was this act of hospitality that was opening yourself up to people in order to love them and serve them and influence them by the way, it, that's still true today. When you have someone in your home and feed them, that is an intimate thing in your life. When's the last time you've done that? And so they were devoted to this breaking of bread. This is the, the other purpose of this was this love feast. They were, they were remembering what Jesus said in the Gospels. Hey, take these elements continually. Remember them. Remember me. And so they took the bread and they drank the wine and they remembered him by taking the elements of the Lord's Supper. And that's why every Sunday we do that in, in our congregation. We have communion set up on the sides of the room because for the first several hundred years of Christianity, that was the centerpiece of Christian worship. That's why we do it here all the time. They were devoted to prayer. This was a community that prayed. They were dependent on God. When people feel their dependence, they pray. Unfortunately, we don't feel a lot of dependence today because we're pretty independent. But God wants us to be interdependent on him and on one another. So we, we pray. They're a praying community. There was supernatural expectation. They believed that God was actively involved in the world around them, that he could save people, that he could heal people, that demons could be cast out of people. This led to holy fear 
and awe in their midst. This, this slaps in the face of modern Western thinking that says, what you see, hear, feel, taste, touch, the empirical evidences of the world are the only thing that exists. We believe that God became a man and he died on a cross. That is the most supernatural thing in the history of the world. And so they had this supernatural expectation that God was alive in their community. There was also radical generosity. It says believers had frequent contact with each other and they shared their possessions with one another. This tends to blow Western minds. Wow, like they, you mean like they shared their stuff with each other? That's crazy, right? And then we have this thing rise up inside of us. Well, that's socialism. <laughs> and, and we start... We start getting into politics at this point. This is not socialism. Socialism says what you have is ours. This is spirit-empowered generosity. What I have is yours. Something inside of me has changed, and so I will live and share my life with others. That's what's happening here. Number eight, they met in small and large groups. For large group, they met in the temple courts. For small groups, they went from home to home. We still do this in our church today. Every Sunday, we gather together as a larger community in this place because community happens in large groups too. Corporate identity, guys, is so important. It's, it's, it's intrinsic to any institution that wants to survive and thrive. You have to have a corporate identity, something larger than yourself. And so they met in large groups, but they also met in small groups. They went from home to home, breaking bread together, encouraging one another, loving each other, serving each other, and we do that too. We have small groups in this church. If you just do one of those things in your life, if all you ever do is attend corporate worship, you are missing something in your Christian experience. If all you ever do is just live in small groups and never attach yourself to this 2,000-year-old story that God is writing through the greater church, the Big C Church, you are missing something. So we do both. We meet in small groups and large groups. Small groups and large groups. Okay, number nine. This is my favorite one. They had favor with all the people. There was something so attractive and beautiful about the way these spirit-empowered believers were living and walking that other people were attracted to them. Is that true a lot today? Or do people know us more for what we are against than what we're for? Do people associate us with, with terrible things happening in our world, maybe in, on the news this weekend? And so how can we as Christians be a subversive community that radically loves and radically serves in a way that shows people we are distinct and different because of this gospel of Jesus Christ? And that is attractive when you live that out. It is attractive the illustration I've used before but I love is that it's like that $10 movie theater popcorn. You walk into the movie theater, you're like, I'm going to be disciplined. I'm not going to buy the popcorn. I'm not going to do it this time. Okay, come on, you're talking yourself up, and you walk in, and you're like, nope, got to do it. <laughs> when you live like this, you become the aroma of Christ to a world that is starving for something real. Starving. Starving. And so their favor led to multiplication and growth. The Lord added to their numbers daily those who were being saved. And so 120 went to 3,000, and then at least one person a day, so 365. 
they say in about 20 years, Christianity made up about 100,000 people in Jerusalem. The population was about 200, 250,000 roughly. Do you think that that was a movement of God happening in that, in that world? Yeah. It's because these people were living different and distinct lives. And we want to be that kind of community here. We want to be a, a community that has supernatural expectation. We want to be devoted to God's word. We want to meet in large and small groups. We want to have radical generosity and radical life sharing. And I am challenged personally by many of you who are living these things out better than I am. And by the way, that's what community's for. We put positive spiritual tension on each other. We love each other. We spur one another. We provoke one another. We want to be that kind of church. We want to be that kind of church. So how do we get there? What do we do? What does this look like? Last question, how do we cultivate this type of community here at New Heights? And make no mistake, this is community that has to be cultivated. That means you have to work the soil, you have to dig, and you have to pull weeds, and you have to plant, and you have to fight against all of the things that are coming to try to eat the fruit that you're trying to plant in your life. This is fruit that has to be cultivated because we tend to drift If we're not making those small incremental changes to the steering wheel constantly, we have to make room for this kind of community in our lives. What does this look like? Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ has loved the church and he gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle, or any other blemish. I think the first thing we have to do, guys, is love the church. We have to love the church. Jesus put all of his chips into one basket. Do you know what the basket was? It was the spirit-empowered community of believers. That's the basket Jesus decided. You know what? I'm going to change the world. And he didn't march to Rome and confront Caesar and start a movement in this large group way. He built the church through 12 men that multiplied to 120, to 3,000, to 100,000, to wherever we are today. We are part of a movement of God. This was the basket Jesus put all of his chips in. We have to love the church. And I think there is this hypercritical, visceral, antichrist spirit in our culture as it pertains to the church. Have you noticed this? Have you noticed this? Gosh, it it drives me crazy. I will preach this to the day I die. The church is the bride of Christ. You can't love Jesus and hate his church. You can't love Jesus and hate his church. Jesus loves his church. It would be like you coming up to me and saying, Josh, I love you. You're amazing. You're a great guy. But I hate Katie. Boy, Katie has really burned me. You know, Katie's really hurt me in a lot of ways. I hate Katie. I love you. I hate Katie. That, it doesn't work. Something doesn't jive there. And I get it. I understand. There have been countless things done in the name of Jesus by Christians that has created all kinds of evil in the world. And Jesus is not complicit with that. And an institution, I don't think we can say, is complicit in that. Institutions don't hurt people. People hurt people. And so we have to love the church. I'm not trying to invalidate any pain or anything that any person in this room has experienced on, on, on behalf of Christians. And I'll, I will continue to do this 
we're, we're sorry. We're sorry. We're sorry. If I can apologize for every Christian in the, in the history of the world, and especially Christian leaders, who, by the way, also go by sinner as well, if I can apologize for them, please forgive us. But we have to remember that there is no perfect church because the church is made up of imperfect people. And I think the problem has been that we, we try to put on this pearly, white, smiley, everything is great with my life mentality. And we're not going to do that here. We're going to be authentic and transparent and vulnerable. We're going to lead with our weaknesses because that shows the grace and the glory of God in our lives when we do that. That's what the kind of church we want to have in this place. By the way, if you did find the perfect church, the moment that you showed up, it would be imperfect because you're a mess and so am I. There is no perfect church. The only way to cultivate genuine Christian community is to love the community. We have to love the church. Last point, how do we cultivate? We need to lead, lead, lead as priests. 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. New covenant spirituality means you don't depend on someone else to be the mediator between you and God. You are a priest. You go into the Holy of Holies. You are trusted with what 2 Corinthians calls the ministry of reconciliation. There is no inner sanctum here. There's no place where a pastor lives and all the other people are out there and he's the spiritual guy who talks to God on our behalf. That's old covenant stuff. You are connected to this God yourself and you have a responsibility to be a priest in this world to lead and to love and to serve in this place and we need to stop there is this this sense of of criticism and complaining and armchair quarterbacking and 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 backseat driving in christian communities today and we just need to stop we need to do what Nick Ogle says. Nick says we need to stop gossiping poorly and we need to start gossiping well. We need to catch each other doing good things, spurring one another on towards that love and good deeds because critique without commitment is cancer. Critique without commitment is cancer. It's cancerous. I'm a make it better guy. I love feedback. I love growing. I always want to grow and change. In fact, it drives some people crazy in my life because we're always trying to change something or get somewhere. But if you don't have commitment to the body, commitment to the community, your criticisms just become cancer to the community, okay? The grass isn't greener on the other side of the fence. The grass is greener where we water it. We got to water our community. I love that quote from Bonhoeffer in his book, Life Together. He says this, he says, the person who loves their dream of community will destroy community. If you are just trying to create this idealized version, perfected version of community in your life, and you're always criticizing someone else for not creating that for you, then what you have is Netflix Christianity. I want to watch the show I want to watch. I want to eat the food I want. It's Golden Corral Christianity. I want to eat the food I want to eat. I want to have the buffet that I want to have because it was going to satisfy me. If you are dying for your dream of community, you are going to destroy community in your life. But if you love the people around you, guess what? You create community. That's how you do this. So we have to lead as priests. We have to lead as priests. What would happen if every Christian in our church lived with this attitude? What kind of community would we develop? 
How would our city feel about us? How would people in Bentonville, Arkansas, think about Christians if we were different like this? What kind of world would we be in? What kind of relationships would we have? We wouldn't feel stuck in the middle of the ocean reaching out for volleyballs. We would have people in our life. That's the kind of church we want to be. Okay, coming in for a landing. We're going to get really practical here now, very practical. When you walked in this morning, there should have been a card and a pen in your seat, okay? If everyone could just take that out right now for me real quick. Grab a pen, grab a card. I get it. You guys know all this stuff. You've heard all this stuff. You get it. I need community, but life is so busy. I need community, but there's all these things pushing up against me. I need community, but my kids play sports. I need community, but they have a certain bedtime. I need community, but then we have to figure out childcare, and childcare is really hard, right? I need community, but I don't know if, I can, if there are people who really I can trust or who really know me. And what I want to say to you this morning is you have to take some initiative in this because you will starve on a deserted island by yourself. The red alert siren should be going off in your mind right now if you're not connected in a meaningful way with people. You're just getting by. But survival is more than just physical. We need people. We were created for community. So here's what we're going to do. I want to ask you, every person in this room, if you feel comfortable doing so, to take a minute and fill out this card. If you're here and you're not connected to Christian community, if you're not in a small group in this church, you are disconnected from the only meaningful mechanism we have to care for you and support you and help mature you in your faith. It's too easy to come into a large group on a Sunday morning and hide. It's way too easy. So you have to be connected to community. So take a minute, if you would, and just fill out this card. If you're here and you're already in a small group, fill it out anyway. But we would love to know who you're connected with because I want to know if something happens in your life, who are the people that we need to rally? Who do we we need to rally around you and for you? And so right now, we're going to take one minute and everyone pull out your pen and let's fill out these cards and I'll tell you what to do with them here in just a second. is such a big deal to what it means to live and walk and and thrive in this world if you don't have people. And so we just want to, as much as we can, be good stewards of the people in our body. We want to shepherd well. I think part of that is helping you connect to people. And if there's something that rises up inside of you right now that says, you know what, that's not all that sounds great, but I'm not going to do it. I would ask you to evaluate your heart What's going on in your life that, that you can't make this happen? Is because something probably needs to change, if that's the case. And here's how we're going to end. I want to invite some people up front. I want to give you a, a picture of something beautiful, I think, in our body. And, and it's, it's this. 
there are many people in this place who are already doing what I was talking about. They're leading and they're serving and they're loving and it's not about them. It's about you and it's about him. And I want to ask them to come up front. I just want to acknowledge them and we want to pray for them. So if, if, if you're a small group leader in our church, could you stand up and just make your way up front? If you lead a community group in any sense, a discovery group, community groups, come up front for us right now. And if I could have my, my community group shepherds come up front right now. There's a, there are three couples who thank God for them. Uh, we, we would not be able to make this thing go without them. And, and those couples are Tim and Amy Ferguson and Jason and Kate Howard and Chris and Dee Dee Pearson. And uh, they're helping shepherd and steward and lead. They're leaders of our leaders. And I'm just so thankful and grateful for them. And uh, I've asked them to actually pray. So I'm not sure which one of you guys wants to pray, but how about you, Chris? So if you're here and you're looking to connect to people, these are the people you need to connect with. It's a pretty impressive group, I think. And they're godly people. So let's, uh, let's do this. In the first century Hebrew culture, extending a hand towards a person was your, a symbol of your blessing and your approval for them. If you feel comfortable, just stick your hand out towards these folks, and Chris is going to pray for him. Let's pray. Father God, <clears throat> what you have proclaimed through your servant Josh is so true. We are designed for community, and yet the battle every day against the evil one is taking us and challenging us and drawing us towards isolation and towards shame and towards aloneness. We rebuke those lies in the name of Jesus. We rebuke them fully and holy in the powerful and authoritative and resurrected name of Jesus. And we as a community here at New Heights, we desire to be people who live and love like Jesus. All these groups, all these leaders, we're all messy. We have not got it figured out. But we know you have it figured out and we have chosen to walk with you together, to reflect you to one another, to celebrate your goodness to give thanks in all things and to enjoy being children of the Most High God. Father, I pray for each one, if there's anyone in this group uh, sitting here today who's not enjoying community, I pray whatever barriers are there might be removed in Jesus' name. There's fears or concerns or past hurts or whatever it may be, I pray that those might be removed and they might find, like us up here, like me, I'm just born into a lot of aloneness and brokenness, but in Jesus, I found family, people who love me, people who walk with me, people who don't give up on me, even when I screw things up. Man, it's such a good reflection of you, Jesus. And this world is crying out for this. So much isolation, lies, and phoniness. Come, Lord Jesus. Come in, in this place. Come in each heart. Come in each man, woman, and child. Come and let yourself be known. We pray this all in the mighty name of Jesus. And the church says, Amen.